Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. Listen, guys, I got something special just for my listeners. If you follow me, you know I usually don't hawk products. I stick to the issues important to you and me. But I think I can't keep this to myself. You may want to check this out and get in on the ground floor before everyone else jumps on the bandwagon. Now, this is just for you, my listeners. I joined up with Team Earth Water. Earth Water is a company that is faith-based and patriotic. Earth Water is an amazing water. It will soon be the rage of the nation and is going worldwide. It has over 70 antioxidants and minerals. It's good, trust me. I already sleep better. I dropped one of my prescriptions, and I'm possibly looking to maybe drop another one soon. So ask yourself, do you want to make a few extra bucks on the side while getting healthier? Who doesn't? So if so, check out the Earth Water link on my homepage at Southern Sense. That's the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. All right, and we're here live. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, The Lone Star, Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Bluetooth, oh, whatever the heck of it is. Uh, you know what I'm going to say. Go to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, along with my debonair and erudite and courageous <laughs> co-host, Curtis courageous. P.S. Bennett. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Oh man! Wow. First, we've got a lot going on today. We've got two great guests uh, joining us. We're going to have Robert Spencer at quarter after the hour with us, uh, and then that will be followed on the second half of the show. Uh, author and com- columnist, if I can talk straight today, uh, Frank Miniter. And want to welcome everyone showing up in the chat room. I see people in the studio already. Over also yeah. in the chat, want to say hi to everyone. We'll get around to all of y'all. Uh, anyway. Uh, today and this is, is a day. unique day, Today's, too. It's an, yeah. Yes, yes, it is. It's a very unique day, a very special day. Uh, it is the uh, 18th, uh, 17 years ago, on this wow. day, we were attacked on 9-11, 2001. And I wrote this last night. Yeah. And I wrote this dedication last night, so I've got a couple of handwritten sheets, so please bear with me. So today's show is being dedicated to all the victims and the heroes of 9-11-2001 in the attacks by radical Islam on the USA. On September 11th, 2001, the world suddenly seemed to stand still, 8.46 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. American Airlines Flight 11, with a crew of 11 
and 76 passengers plus five hijackers flew into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. 17 minutes later at 9.03 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, United Flight 175 struck the South Tower. On board were nine crew members, 51 passengers, and five hijackers. 34 minutes later, at 9.37 a.m., American Airlines 77 flew over Washington, D.C. and into the Pentagon. On board was a crew of six and 53 passengers. In less than one hour, three hijacked planes struck three buildings in the United States, two in downtown Manhattan in New York City at the Twin Towers and in Washington, D.C. at the heart of our military. Because of the rapid advancement of the communication age, word spread fast of these events. A mere eight years before, another attack was launched on the Twin Towers. Word didn't spread as fast. Now, on September 11th in 2001, cell phones and computers spread the word on terra firma and in the air. On board United Airlines Flight 93, cell phones beeped, chirped, and rang with the word of the three planes crashing into American buildings. That flight had a crew of seven and 33 passengers. Four hijackers were forcing the plane to divert. We don't know if the target was the White House or Congress in session. On United Flight 93, one passenger in his final cell phone call was heard to say, let's roll, in an attempt to reclaim their flight from the hijackers and stop the attacks on America. It ended in a Pennsylvania field, Shanklin, Pennsylvania. Never was American exceptionalism as so represented in these heroes. As the Twin Towers burned in Manhattan, some 200 people jumped rather than to burn to death. Fearless first responders pulled up on the plaza to tend to the injured. Did they even think that those two towers would ever fall and crush them to death? On September 11th, 2,996, over 6,000 injured. Over 10 billion in infrastructure and property damage was caused. The two towers of the World Trade Center collapsed, 110 stories each. In the aftermath, over 16,000 emergency responders and recovery workers have been diagnosed with illnesses from their work efforts during the after. 9-11. Today, these unsung heroes continue to die from the results of the attacks on September 11th. Moreover, our military men and women were deployed in the wake of 9-11 and die and come home broken because of radical Islam. We must never forget the events and loss of 9-11-2001. The innocent men and women and children lost and killed by terrorists. We must never forget the bravery of the first responders or the dedication of the recovery workers, nor those who provided for them with food, water, rest, and simple comfort. In the days, weeks, and years that followed, millions of Americans have donated blood, money, and tangible items to help in the search and recovery efforts. We have rebuilt the Pentagon and created a memorial at its ground zero in Shanklin, Pennsylvania, 
and at the Pentagon. We will not forget. We will not be defeated. We will stand strong. We are a nation of exceptionalism, which was gifted to us by our founders and by God. Yes, we mourn our loss, as we do all of those fallen by our enemies. But we stand strong and proud with the strength of our citizens, who fearlessly move forward in the land of the free and the home of the brave. This show is a special dedication in the memory of 9-11. It is an honor the victims, heroes, responders, many who even today suffer from the results of that day. We pray for each and every one. May God bless them, and may God bless America. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herndon. My name is America. Born in the grip of oppression, I fought for my liberty. I paid with the blood of my people. Freedom has never been free. Now my door's always open to dreamers and friends. When I'm attacked, I protect and
Show, which you can find at ToddAllenShow.com. And we're back live. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, about Facebook, YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Blueberry, all the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, Southern-Sense.com. Of course, I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick. And Curtis is trying to see if we can get our guest in on the show. I have a funny feeling he called in a little early when he heard me say a quarter after the hour. I think he ducked out. But hopefully Robert Spencer will be with us very shortly. Today is a special show dedicated to the memory of the victims and heroes of 9-11. And many of you know that I am a retired New York City police officer. I lost some friends on that day. Uh, one of them happened to have been from ESU Truck 8, Sergeant Green, and just before I retired back in 96, I had written up a citation for him uh, for an act of bravery that he did. And um, he came into the office reluctantly because his buddy basically dragged him in and made him sit down and say what happened so I could write it up for him. And that was the last time I saw him shortly before I retired. And I can remember that day as if it was yesterday. I remember what I was doing that morning at 9-11. My husband and I had already moved here to South Carolina. I've been retired now about five and a half years at that point. And we were sitting on the couch and he was watching I Miss in the Morning. And uh, they suddenly flashed to the pictures of what was going on at the Twin Towers. And I sat there in silence and just struck with horrific awe while I watched the second plane fly in. And I said, that was a plane. That was a plane that hit the Twin Towers and then they began to play the clip over again. And yes, you could see it clearly. I don't understand these conspiracy theorists. I really don't. When so many lives were lost. But I watched it. And I saw it. And I watched people jump and die. And because I knew New York City, I knew the Twin Towers. I knew the lay of the land. And I knew my brethren, my fellow police officers, the firefighters, emergency services would be pulling their equipment onto the plaza. And I said, they're going to fall. Because I remember being on duty in 1993, February, when the towers were attacked the first time. And that's what we did. So today's show is dedicated to the victims and heroes of 9-11 and to those that continue to fight the war on terror. That said, let's bring on... a. T- Fearless fighter of jihad, Robert Spencer. Good afternoon, Robert. How are you today? Just great. How are you? Uh, I thought I was doing fine until I started the dedication, <laughs> and then it started to break oh, up. I understand. But I'll get yeah. over it. I'll get over it's it. A, it's, it's a very a difficult day. There's a... no doubt about it. But we, we have to be resolved, of course, and resolute, and know that despite the inroads that the jihadis have made since 9-11, that they're still not going to prevail. No, no. And the Bible tells us in Revelation that we win in the end, no matter what. We will have a Indeed. fight, we will have a battle, but we will come out victoriously. Uh, by the way, uh, if I mispronounce this, forgive me, because I was raised an Italian Roman Catholic. Shana Tova. It's a couple of days late, but I wanted to wish you a Shana Tova. Thank you very much. <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Good I threw you on that one. Um, yes. Anyway, uh, yep. Today is the 17th anniversary of 9/11, and we are uh, 
probably no greater, no better off in terms of understanding the ideology behind the threat than we were on the day itself. And that is testimony to the great success that Islamic advocacy groups and their leftist allies have had in the United States since 9-11. Yeah, uh, fortunately we have a president in the Oval Office that I believe gets most of it. You know, a native New Yorker yeah. himself, you know, he was he's part of the 9-11 event. Uh, and just recently he did something to the PLO. He, he decided to close some offices down, didn't he? Yes, that was astonishing and uh, really long overdue. The PLO, of course, is the governing authority of the Palestinian Authority, and they have official television stations where they have been inciting to genocide and uh, even telling small children how great it is to kill Jews. This is something that has been going on while the United States has been subsidizing them to help bring about a peace process that has always been a sham and an illusion. And so it's a great thing that the president has finally called a halt, and we can hope that more will be coming such that these groups will be cut off altogether. They really should, and there should be a condition that if you are enabling and approving of jihad terror, that you are not going to receive any American aid. You know, I, I don't understand why we even have, still have care in the United States. The unindicted co-conspirator in the Holy Land Foundation uh, trial, uh, we still have Muslim Brotherhood operating within our government still. You know, they're telling the CIA and the FBI how to operate around Muslims. They forced the NYPD to remove their section of the patrol guide that dealt with radical Islam. Why, are we still, yeah. why do we still have them here? Well, because the infiltration has been very skillful and is very comprehensive. Uh, the reality is that we have people who are sympathizing with the enemy, and they're in high places. Remember that even on 9-11, George W. Bush was standing in the mosque when, uh, six days after 9-11, I should say, with uh, uh, Abdurrahman Alamudi, who was the head of the American Muslim Council and is now in prison for financing al-Qaeda. So a, uh, the, the financing of al-Qaeda, a financier of the group that took down the towers, is standing there with the president on the day, just days after the towers went down. It's astonishing. Oh, I, I found that very astonishing myself. Matter of fact, you've got a new book out where you discuss a lot of this called The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS that just came out just uh, last month. Yes, that's right. And this is the first and only comprehensive uh, history of the entire phenomenon of jihad from the beginning, from the, ninth, uh, the 7th century to the 21st century, showing that this has been a consistent struggle that all over the world for 14 centuries, wherever there have been Muslims, they have waged war against non-Muslims. And why should we think that we are going to be different in the United States today? You know, some some of us get it. Others still are not. A matter of fact, our next guest uh, after you is going to be Frank Miniature. <laughs> and when you talk, look at what he's talking about, uh, the scandal with the uh, IT techs and the deep state that involves it, it ties in so perfectly with what you, you are constantly talking about. You know, um, people have to understand who their enemies are. And Thomas Jefferson did that by buying the Quran and reading it. And I, yes. I listen to people talk about Islam and call us Islamophobes, but these are people that have never bothered to, down to read the Quran. 
Yes, you're quite right. And they, uh, the thing about that, the, the the funny thing about that, Andy, is that uh, they're so dogmatic about it that they haven't read the Quran. They don't know uh, what it says, but they just assume what it says and figure that anybody who is speaking about the unpleasant aspects of it must be a hateful, bigoted Islamophobe. It must really be a book full of hugs and rainbows. And it's not. And uh, this is just not the case. But uh, this is what we're dealing with, that there is this massive misinformation and disinformation all the time. Now, that, that I find, and uh, I was speaking to someone who happened to have been raised as, I believe she was a Baptist, and converted to Islam. And she's, you know, giving us all this stuff about how it's a peaceful religion and on and on and on. And it's like, well, how do you know? Have you read the Quran? No, I trust my imam. I trust my imam to tell me the truth. Yeah. And I, I, my jaw just dropped. And it's just, well, um, I listen to my priest and I sit down and I read the Bible and I think about what he's telling me and I try to make sense of it. And that is one of the reasons why I stopped being a Roman Catholic and I'm now an Anglican. Because I stopped, I listened, I thought, I read, I researched, and I found where my heart belongs. And it didn't belong with what I found, the hypocrisy in the Catholic Church, and I found it in the purity I was finding in the church I now belong. But they're, they're just mimicking the words of an imam or someone else telling them, what to think and what to do. And that's the major problem within Islam. It's a herd mentality yeah, rather than individual independent thought. What's ironic about it, too, is that Islam allows for the deception of unbelievers. The Quran says uh, that you can do not take unbelievers as your friends unless you're doing it to guard yourselves against them, which has been understood by Islamic scholars throughout history as being a license to uh, essentially deceive the unbelievers if you're under pressure from them. And so the, she, the, the, your, your friend doesn't know that the imam is saying, telling the truth. And the imam may well be being deceptive because this is something that's sanctioned in Islam. And so it just becomes all the more ironic that uh, this is somebody saying, I don't have to read the Quran, I have to know what is in there. And the imam is telling me everything ends okay. Yeah, they recite the prayers exactly as they teach them to you without even knowing what the heck you're saying. Uh, yes. That, again, I found amazing. Yes, quite so, because you have to pray in Arabic. The Quran is in Arabic, and if you're going to pray the Quran in the mosque, and the Islamic prayers all actually, uh, they they all have to be in Arabic. And so if you don't know Arabic, you might just be mouthing syllables then you'd have no idea what the meaning is, but that's how you have to pray in Islam. And so it's uh, all the more ironic that this would be something that uh, uh, people would be saying you have to, <laughs> you don't understand it properly, when a lot of Muslims don't even understand it, based on the fact that uh, if they haven't looked at one of the translations, then they don't know. I remember years ago, and people think this is a joke, but this is a real incident that actually uh, happened to me, that I was speaking with a Muslim from Pakistan, and he told me, he said, I have uh, memorized almost all of the Quran, and I'm very proud of my religion. And one day I'm going to go to get one of those translations and find out what it means. <laughs> True story. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Yep. You know, because I, I was 
I was raised in, as I said, the Catholic Church uh, at the time where they still had mass in Rome in uh, Latin. And fortunately, yeah. because my heritage is Italian, I was able to interpret the words and figure out exactly what the prayers were, which made me more comfortable in saying that, because at least I understood what I was saying in prayer. What, what got me was you had to say everything in Latin, and no one spoke Latin unless you were a doctor or a scientist or something, uh, that you had yeah. to know Latin for your, your work. Uh, and everyone's saying, oh, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying in Latin. What is it you're praying about? Who are you praying to? What are you praying for? God speaks many languages, so why does it have to be Latin? Why can't we just do it in English, our native tongue? Yes. Well, it's the same thing, even more so, actually, in Islam. It has to be in Arabic. Arabic is the language of Allah. There's no prayer without, unless it's in Arabic. Robert. Yeah, no, um, you, yeah. Oh, go ahead. This is my co-host, Curtis. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, I'm, vi- I'm visiting up in Philadelphia at this time, and everywhere I go, I, I see young women um, dressed up in, you know, Muslim garb. Yes. And I'm, I'm wondering what, what is the mindset of such people who are living in a country that cherishes freedom, you know, I just don't get well, it. They're taught uh, a lot of the, uh, if you're talking about Philadelphia, I've been to Philadelphia many times myself and oh, I yeah. see a lot of uh, converts to Islam, you know, especially African Americans. And they are taught that Islam is the uh, religion that is not racist. And that unlike Christianity, which had segregated churches in the South in the old days and things like that, that uh, Islam is uh, some uh, is a religion that actually teaches racial equality. Now, this is not actually the case, and uh, a lot of the converts to Islam don't know this, but uh, Islam is actually a vehicle for Arab supremacism, and the Arabs are exalted above all other people. Not only do you have the, uh, the uh, prayers in Arabic like we were discussing, but also the idea that Arabic culture is so important that even converts to Islam end up changing their name to Arabic names like Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, uh, Lou Alcindor to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and so on, which gives the impression that uh, there's some greater status to uh, the uh, to the um, Arabic to that religion, culture. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so people, they, they, they convert to it. They're basically being sold a bill of goods. They're being told that in Islam, all races and all cultures are equal, when actually Arabic is supreme. And uh, a lot of times also women are told that uh, they should cover up because there's the sexual revolution in the West and women are reduced to uh, the status of commodities and so on. And they're on magazine covers to sell magazines with women's bodies and so on. And that Islam, they're told, teaches a dignity of women, and that's why women cover up. Now, actually, women cover up in Islam because it's, the entire, the, it's the, entirely the woman's responsibility to make sure that a man is not tempted. And it's her fault if he is anyway. And that's why she covers up to remove the source of the temptation. So it's really a very misogynistic thing. But here again, their PR is very good, and they sold it to a lot of American women as something that is a modest statement and a statement of one's individuality. 
No, well, even in the Quran, they give a class status to different people, and they they put black people at the lowest rung. For some reason, Christians and Jews are better than blacks, according to the Quran, the way I read it. Am I looking at this right or wrong, Robert? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you only have slavery of uh, black people in Islam at this point, and that is in North Africa, where the uh, uh, the idea is well, the word for for slave abd abid abid is the same as the word for black in Arabic, and you have. Slavery having been abolished, even still, it is because it's sanctioned in Islam. It's still practiced in places like Mauritania, Niger, as well as under the table in places like Saudi Arabia. And even they only abolished slavery in 1962. So the idea that this is some sort of a wonderful egalitarian society where there are no uh, racial distinctions, no class distinctions, these things are, are false. And there are uh, it's just sold to Americans to deceive them and bring them into it. Yeah, I guess um, Louis Farrakhan didn't get that that memo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, he's, out, he's still waiting basis. for that, that alien to orbit. <laughs> anyway, Indeed. Uh, but if you look at the truth about Islam, uh, it, it depends upon which tribe you belong to. It depends upon uh, which branch of Islam you belong to. And it's it's hugely hugely segregated. Shia versus Sunni, and then you have the Wahhabi, and then you have other subgroups below, which are are at the lowest rung of the ladder. So I just how they can accept this? They go into a religion without actually investigating it. Just take blind faith. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely true. And there is not nearly as much investigation on these issues as there ought to be. Uh, these, uh, uh, these things are taken at face value, these deceptive presentations by the Islamic proselytizers to the detriment of the people who are buying them. Yeah, uh, you wrote an article about the South Koreans and actually now a UN refugee agency calling South Korean Islamophobic because the South Koreans are saying, hey, wait a minute, you're sending us refugees that are not really refugees. These guys are coming in here. They're military-aged males. Uh, they have iPhones and well-dressed and so forth. And they're saying, wait a minute, these do not look like actual refugees from a war-torn state. These people are affluential. No, they're not refugees. And, the, and South Korea is having the audacity to call out what it is. And it's, it's incredible that the United Nations actually is uh, attempting to uh, claim that the South Koreans are Islamophobic simply because they're wary about bringing in Yemeni refugees. When Yemen is a place where there's been strife and conflict for centuries, and why do they think they're not going to bring it, bring it with them to South Korea? It's very, it's absurdly naive to pretend that there isn't any uh, jihad threat or that there isn't any reason for a non-Muslim state to be concerned. It's, it's absurd, but here we are. Well, now Trump has been cutting down the numbers of refugees he's permitting, and yet we are still allowing the U.N. to dictate to us. Uh, he's now pulling the plug on that, thankfully. Uh, but we have been looking at this as a globalization by the U.N. of all other countries, letting the U.N. then rule our nation. Yes, and this is a question of sovereignty that the president has uh, 
very well taken in hand, cutting off the UN Refugee Agency and so on. Uh, these things, once again, are long overdue. That it is. That it is. And I would love to see the UN shipped out, sent it to Geneva or something, <laughs> send it somewhere else, but not here. <laughs> I'd love to see them get out of here. But um, there's so much to talk about that's going on in the world. But tell us, uh, oh, God, I just had the thought fly right out of my head. Oh, my goodness. Pardon me. It's a senior moment here we all have once in a while. Um, well, let me ask this I was, question I was point- then. Why are you thinking? Go ahead, Curtis. Of course, course today's the anniversary of uh, 9-11, and um, we, as a nation, you know, we pay homage to those who perish, but do you think, like, maybe, like, 10 or 20 years from now, um, it will not be as poignant um, a celebration because of the distance from the actual event? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think that's absolutely. Yes, sir. I think that's already happening, that uh, there's a whole generation now of uh, people who are, uh, what are they, seniors in high school or whatever, and they don't right. remember it at all, you know, and it's just a thing in the history books, like uh, the Crusades. Pearl Harbor. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, exactly. And so it doesn't have any resonance for them now. And meanwhile, they've been beaten around the head for all these years with the idea of Islamophobia and the idea that it's Islamophobic to be concerned about the jihad terror threat. And so, yeah, I think that the more uh, it's going to continue. Remember that at Ripon College, uh, which I think should change its name now to Ripoff College, Ripon College in Wisconsin, (laughs) they uh, didn't want to give a student group permission to post – a poster about remembering 9-11 because they thought it would be offensive to Muslim students. I think there you go. That's where we are today. That is an absolute shame. And we've allowed this to creep into our culture to actually allow them to do their stealth jihad, as our friend uh, Paul uh, Sutliff talks about the, the civilization jihad is also what they're doing to change our thoughts so that we feel guilty if we are worried about our security. When we see time and time yes. again jihadist attacks, terrorist attacks on innocent civilians, we see uh, blue on blue where you have our own military men and women out there working alongside these supposed uh, peaceful Islamists who are trying to supposedly stop terrorism, but they are being attacked by the very people they're attempting to help. And yet we turn a blind eye to it. And how dare we remember the victims of and heroes of 9-11? How dare we? Because we're insulting Islam. It's like the Catholic yes. college a few years back that was told that they had too many crucifixes. It's a Catholic college. <laughs> they're supposed yeah. to have crucifixes. We're well, allowing this is, it, it's a sickness all over the West. We're losing a sense of our own identity a sense of pride in our own identity, and that is very dangerous because with that goes any sense of any willingness to uh, defend our own uh, our our own civilization and culture. Yeah, and we're seeing now more and more as they do their stealth and the civilization jihad. We now have them running for office. Uh, well, wait a minute, we do already have them in Congress. But they're they're running for other offices so that now when they get the reins of government, what will our Constitution look like? 
it'll be torn apart. Yeah. This is true, and this is what we're dealing with. You have Keith Ellison, who is in Congress, and now he's running for Attorney General of Minnesota. And I was initially puzzled by that and thought, now why would he step down? He could have run for the Senate. Why is he going back to Minnesota just to be Attorney General of one state? But then I was thinking, well, there are a lot of jihad investigations there in Minnesota. There's, it's a hotbed of jihad recruitment, and uh, he can is now will be in a position where he can quash the investigations. And so that's going to be interesting. Well, we have a question from Ron in the chat room. He's asking why the U.S. is taking so long to designate the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization. We heard rumors of them doing it, but we haven't seen them actually do it. And Trump has now been in office for two years. Um, Okay. The uh, thing about that I would expect is that the uh, problem is the infiltrators in the government. Remember that back in 2012, the uh, Congresswoman Michelle Bachman from Minnesota called for an investigation of Muslim Brotherhood infiltration into the United States government. And St. John McCain went on the Senate floor and smacked her down, said that this was uh, a racist and Islamophobic and bigoted for her to ask for. And there was no investigation. But there were people who were in the government and who still are who have connections to the Brotherhood. And I think that's one of the reasons why it has not been declared a terrorist organization. I'm hoping that it still will be, though, after the midterms. I'm hoping so, too, because if you remember St. John McCain and his uh, his his son, my senator, uh, Lamesy Gramnesty, uh, went to <laughs> Egypt, to Cairo, and told the government in Cairo, told... Um, Al-Sisi, you must allow the Muslim Brotherhood into government. You must let them out of jail. They are dictating to Egypt to let their enemy out of jail and into government. That's, that, that's the St. McCain and Lamesy Gramnesy. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Didn't they sit down at the White House and break bread with the Muslim Brotherhood, had a nice little luncheon with, with them, and oh, what a happy little meeting they had? My sarcasm yeah, is coming so. out a little, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it is it's it is appalling. It's it's uh, it's astonishing, really, the inroads that these groups have been able to make since nine eleven, and uh, not a good sign, really. Is Care one of those no. groups? Yes, certainly. Care uh, is one of the worst examples of it because they were declared an unindicted co-conspirator in a Hamas funding case. A long, several years ago, and the FBI actually announced that they were going to stop working with them. But nonetheless, they still have immense power and influence among very high-placed people. And it seems as if nobody even really cares if they're tied to Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood. And that's what's most astonishing. No, you, there's a long list of organizations tied directly to the Muslim Brotherhood, the least of which is uh, the Black Panthers, the new Black Panthers. As a matter of fact, if you go on to uh, the Black Panther, new Black Panthers website, they list their relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood outright. And they're right there smack in front of us doing election intimidation, <laughs> and we do yes. nothing about these organizations. Yes. Exactly. Uh, they, the, well, intimidation is a tremendous factor. They work, the, the Islamic Jihad groups and Islamic supremacist groups in the U.S. traffic in intimidation on a routine basis. 
And for some reason, a lot of Americans that you think ought to be made of sterner stuff, they just fall right into line. Yeah, that's the, that's the shameful part because you'll see the progressives put their bumper stickers out there right blatant in your face. They've got their I hate Trump signs all over the place. But heaven forbid we put a pro-Trump sign on any of our vehicles. Your windows will be slashed. Your car will be keyed. You will be intimidated. But don't don't you dare say something like, well, you still have an Obama sticker on your bumper car. How'd that work out for you? Oh, good Lord, you'd have 911 calls on you. Indeed. And Another interesting article you put out was just yesterday. Uh, You were talking about what's going on in Sweden when a member of the ruling party said Islamic rules are more important than Swedish rules, saying that even though you migrated to my country, this is the new thing. Yes. It's, uh, he, he was actually a Muslim politician, and the thing is people say this is something that we have to do. We have to bring Muslims into the political process, let the immigrants feel at home, let them feel like this is their country, and then they will assimilate and everything will be okay. And what actually happens is what we see in this case, that there's no assimilation, but just on the part of the Muslim popula- uh, on politician, on the part of the Muslim politician, just the, the declaration that Islam is going to be supreme in the new country. And so that's what we're dealing with. Yeah, I had an imam wave the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution in in the air in front of me saying Sharia law will never replace the Constitution. And I looked at him and all I said was Takiyah. Yes. Well, there you go. (laughs) Curtis, go ahead. Robert. Yeah. Is it true that um, Muslims love to build mosques over sites that they they conquered, and that's one of the reasons yeah. why they wanted to build a mosque at the site of um, World Trade Center. And why is that? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Well, it shows the supremacy and the victory of Islam. It shows that Allah is superior to the gods of the unbelievers, and that Islam has triumphed and is superior to whatever religion was represented, or in this in the case of the World Trade Center, whatever country. Uh, so you have many many mosques in the Islamic world that are based built on places where they used to be churches or synagogues or Hindu temples in India. And the Muslims want to build directly on those places because that shows that Islam is superior, that has Islam has been victorious. And so the just, symbolism of the world trade, huh? Just like the um, temple mount in Israel. Jerusalem. Exactly. The temple mount is the most notorious example. And also in Christianity, the, uh, the Hagia Sophia, which was the grandest church in the Christian world for a thousand years, and, uh, and then it was turned into a mosque in uh, 1453, and now it's a museum, but the Turkish government wants to make it into a mosque again. And so uh, what you have with the World Trade Center is the people who were building the mosque, they wanted to, they were saying, oh, this is not going to, nobody's going to see this as a triumphal mosque uh, having anything to do with 9-11. This is going to be a mosque of reconciliation. But if you look around the world, there's no mosque of reconciliation anywhere in the world. But there are plenty of triumphal mosques built on the cherished sites of conquered people. I mean, you think back to the history, and the uh, mosque at Cordoba is a perfect example, built upon a Catholic cathedral. And um, I'm forgetting the name of the uh, 
the ruler that built it, because his statement was when the walls went higher than the actual walls of the city, he said, well, let the infidels fear us. The, the yeah. intent was to say, hey, we conquered you. We are better. We are taller. We are superior to you. Yes. Was it Saladin? Richard the Lionhearted. Oh, Saladin went up against Richard the Lionhearted. Yeah. Richard the Lionhearted, yeah. Yeah, Saladin was yeah, but, against Richard the Lionhearted, absolutely. Yeah, I just forget who the, who it was in Cordoba, but which is why they wanted the mosque in Manhattan to be named the Cordoba Mosque. They wanted to imitate yes. exactly what they did on the Iberian Peninsula and saying, we have now conquered the United States. Yes. Exactly. That's exactly what it was all about. <laughs> okay. All right. But uh, now we've we've got a lot going on, and you mentioned Turkey, and Turkey, who used to be an ally of ours, has now become an enemy because Erdogan is now looking to smash us economically, not just with his the schools he's sending over here to brainwash our children. The uh, what's it called? The Gulen schools, right? Um, They're setting up all these Islamic schools, and New York City has a large number of them, which is run by the New York City Board of Education, uh, and they have infiltrated the school system so well, now Eridan is now trying to go after our economy. They've already gone after the education, now they're going after our dollar. And you wrote an excellent article on this. Tell us about this. Well, Erdogan is uh, an enemy of the United States. That's essentially the long and the short of it. Uh, Erdogan is not an ally, not a friend of the United States. And we need to revisit the NATO alliance. We need to revisit our alliance with Turkey altogether and recognize that uh, Turkey has decided to join the jihad force. In this particular case, the uh, Turkish president Erdogan went, was at a meeting of the Central Asian Muslim states uh, Turkmenistan and Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. And he, uh, he said that uh, the, you know, we, we need to free ourselves from the dollar and strike at the U.S. economically. And so this is yet more indication that he's not an ally, not a friend. Well, wasn't the purpose of Turkey joining the uh, European Union – to allow the free migration of Muslims in through Europe, which is what we've seen happen? Yes. They, they, the, look, if Turkey joins the European Union, then that's the end of, the, of Europe, because then uh, Islamic jihadis will be able to pass into Europe with no difficulty whatsoever, and the decisions for the European Union will be made from Turkey because it will have the largest population. And so uh, this, is, this would be the end of Europe altogether. Uh, and so it's very important that that not happen, and we can only hope that it won't. It is likely that it won't indeed at this point because uh, now I think people are waking up to the implications of of that fact uh, of Turkey joining yeah. the European Union. And so it's not likely to happen now, which is all to the good. Yeah, because you were seeing what's happening in England where you've got these gangs going around just – destroying property you've got the rape gangs that are now finally being exposed you have over in uh, scandinavia norway and sweden where women wear these rubber bands on their their wrists that say don't rape me 
that, that doesn't work. They've got the highest rate of rape uh, occurring because they have allowed yeah. Islam to take over their society. And lo and behold, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to turn around and just say, all right, I'm, I'm going to be enslaved by you, so may as well accept my fate, which it seems like they're doing. Everyone seems to be doing that yes. except for Poland. Yeah, the, well, Poland, Hungary, Austria, Czech Republic, they've all told the uh, European Union they're not taking all this uh, Muslim migration. And so we'll see how that shakes out. That's going to be interesting if the European Union forces them uh, or kicks them out. Maybe the European Union itself will collapse, which would be all to the good in terms of the freedom of societies in Europe. Robert. Yeah, it is. We, yes, we, sir. We don't hear much about ISIS too much in the news like we did maybe six, seven years ago. Um, should we give that credit to um, President Trump and his policies, or should Obama give yes. some of the credit to? Obama deserves <laughs> some of the credit. <laughs> yes, well, look, uh, in 2016, it looked as if ISIS was going to be here to stay. In 2016, John Kerry went to Turkey and asked Erdogan to stop buying ISIS oil, and he refused. And the uh, Turkish government was dealing with ISIS, helping ISIS fighters get across Turkey into, into the holdings of the Islamic State. And so the fact is that it looked as if they were going to travel the same path as the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which started out as a terror group that everybody abhorred and now is a respected United Nations member and so on with the Palestinian Authority. And so uh, it was Trump who turned all this around and Trump who rolled up the territory that they controlled, which was larger than Great Britain at one time, and made it so that this uh, was not going to happen. There's still a threat, especially in terms of the foreign fighters who came from the West, and now many of them are still alive and have returned to the West, and this is some; these are people we're going to be hearing from again, unfortunately. Uh, but they are much less of a significant force than they were before Trump became president. Well, you know, you got to remember, John Kerry is the one that turned around to Israel and said, you cannot be a Jewish nation and a democracy at the same time. And that was one of the yes. WTF moments. I just stood there looking at the TV screen going, did, I did not really just hear him say that, did I? It is astonishing when you consider that there's so many Islamic states in the world and nobody ever says anything like that to them. No, and when... The question of opening up the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, you know, you hear people going, oh, that's going to be terrible. You can't do that. Can't You have to leave it in where it is. No, 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 you can't. You can't. You can't. And I'm looking, and I, I've said this many times. Tell me one other nation in the world where the other nations can tell you where to put your capital. Do we tell Russia you can't have Moscow? Do we tell China you can't have Beijing? Or do we tell Japan they can't have Tokyo? But only Israel do we tell you where your capital can and cannot be. Yep, you're right. It's an astonishing thing. Uh, not only that, but uh, the right of conquest is recognized all over the world and has been all throughout human history. Uh, Germany lost a massive amount of territory after World War II to Poland and the Soviet Union. And why? Well, they deserved it. They started a massive war and caused untold suffering around the world. And so it was uh, recognized that Poland and the Soviet Union were entitled to these territorial gains and that Germany should lose. 
Now, Israel is attacked in an unprovoked manner by uh, six hostile Arab Muslim states and captures the Sinai and the uh, West Bank, Judea and Samaria, Gaza and so on, and uh, has to give them back. And nobody recognizes the right of conquest in those instances. And I think this is yet more of this international double standard when it comes to Israel, the things that nations have taken for granted. I mean, all you have to do is look at a historical atlas and you see the borders of the world are always changing. And they're always changing because there are always wars and the wars lead to transfer of territory from one sovereign nation to another. This has been taken for granted throughout human history, except regarding Israel. Robert, how important is it? Yeah, you know, Israel and Egypt has a pretty good relationship, you know, um, overall. And um, how important was um, Anwar Sadat and his role in that? Well, he uh, he made uh, the possible the Camp David Accords, and that has kept the peace between Egypt and Israel ever since then. And uh, that's all to the good, I suppose. He wasn't as great as his uh, international reputation is. Uh, he even, I remember him wearing a swastika tie to one of the meetings with Jimmy Carter and Menachem Begin. Uh, but there's no doubt that is, Israel has not faced a big threat from Egypt since then, and so that's all to the good. Well, Egypt seems to walk a thin line. You know, at one point yes. they'll stand with the Arab nations, and other times they will side with Israel. So it's a very fine and thin line. Um, their economy is very, very dependent on outsiders. Uh, and I think yes. that's why they managed to do that. Where you have the other Arab nations, their economy does not depend upon outsiders. They've got the oil, they've got it cornered, and they say, well, you know, the heck with you. If you want our oil, then you're going to have to deal with this. Uh, mm-hmm. Egypt is a little bit different on that way. And I think as long as Egypt stands, we may have a chance at peace in the Middle East. Maybe. Um, remember that the uh, Christians in Egypt are suffering from ongoing persecution and that that is something that the Egyptian government keeps promising to do something about and never does. And it's very clear that the Egyptian government is uh, essentially unable to uh, do anything about this persecution because if they did, they would face trouble from the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood, although they have worked very resolutely to limit its power since 2013, it's still very much a very powerful force in the country and one that can cause considerable trouble for the government. So that being the case, they uh, are not going to move to protect the Christians with any great energy. And consequently uh, it's not, it's a kind of a mixed bag really. And it's the same thing with Israel. They allow all this terrible rhetoric against the Israelis even still, which is actually in violation of the uh, Camp David Accords, but there it is. You know, if you think of the history of the Middle East, how much it had influence on the rise of Christianity and the areas in which Christ walked and his, his disciples walked, you know, you're talking about Syria, you're talking about Jordan, you're talking about all of that area that is now Arabic, where it was highly Christian. And Egypt had a thriving, large Christian community, at Turkey and also. You know, where was the yes. Noah's Ark found? On the side of Mount Ararat. It had humongous influences of Judaism and Christianity. 
and it's been all yes. wiped out. That's quite so, and that is. Uh, it's also, I mean, it wasn't just Christian communities, but they were Christian areas. Uh, Anatolia, the, the site of what is now Turkey, was a Christian area for many centuries and was the heartland of the Byzantine Empire, which was Christian. There weren't any Muslims there. It was just conquered and Islamized, and the same thing with Egypt. Yeah, because it, it's, it's, uh, Islam is a religion of submission, whereas all other religions do not mandate that you join them. They say, you know, you come, you're yes. welcome. We have you got just a couple of minutes left. Want to make a notation? You got a fan in the chat room here, Kel of uh, Red Fox Radio and Global Patriot Radio, <laughs> wants to have a couple of cocktails with you. It sounds like. Uh, anyway, uh, someone else, Vito Esposito, uh, has already bought your book, ordered your book, and we've got a caller in on the line. So let's bring the caller in, and he's a former co-host of mine, Cool Mike. Good Good afternoon, Mike. How are you doing? Hey, doing great. Um, quick, hey, two Mike. questions. Hey, Curtis, quick two questions for the guests. I'm really enjoying this. Do you think with uh, former President Obama coming out, trying to take credit for a lot of this, he's trying to force almost like a presidential election in a midterm year, just as an evaluation of what they need to do two years from now? And uh, just a guess of mine. Secondly, um, what do you think the purpose of President Obama actually acknowledging um, that things are great. I mean, or things are much better trying to take it. What would, I, I mean, I, I thought it was almost counterproductive him trying to take credit for acknowledging things are great. Yeah, but he has to do it because it's in the news and the president is talking about it. They can't just pretend that things are lousy. People know that things are great in terms of the economy. And that being the case, they have to come up with some explanation, and that's why he's claiming credit even though this is something that he actually criticized Trump for saying that he was going to do. And now he's actually has the audacity to take credit for it, but they, they don't have any other choice. They can't, they can't say the economy's terrible. It isn't. No. Do you think they're trying well, to make force an election, you know, a, a presidential sorry? election? Yeah. He's trying do to make uh, the midterm into a referendum on Trump. Certainly. Oh, okay. That was my question. Basically. Yeah. Oh, Look, thanks. it's been a lot of fun, thanks but unfortunately much. I have another show right away. I have to run. Thank you. All right. It's been well, wonderful. Thank you for joining us. People can find you at jihadwatch.com. Take org. care. Thanks <laughs> a lot, Robert. Enjoy. All right. Robert Spencer, check him out at uh, jihadwatch.org. His new book is called History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. And it looks like we've got our next guest in on the line. And let's bring him aboard, Frank Miniature. How are you doing, Frank? Very good. Thanks for having me here. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've got to get Robert, get Robert's stuff out of the way so I can pull up yours. And um, I was speed reading through your book, and I, I, I didn't type out all the notes that I have on it, but I've got nine pages of notes. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, I'm not going to give away the ending. <laughs> but uh, you're a columnist, and you've got several books out. You're also an avid sportsman. So I chose for your picture you holding the uh, the fish. <laughs> uh, Very good. What is, what is that, a trout? Yeah, I'm not sure which, which picture you grabbed. I, I travel so much, and I'm, so much of me is out there. <laughs> and it's a good of you out there. But you've got a new book out called Spies in Congress. Uh, it's inside the Democratic cover-up of Cyber Scandal. 
And, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit on and off about this situation with Debbie, what's her name, Schultz, uh, when she was the uh, head of the DNC and her, her IT guys, her, her tech guys for her computers and all her other devices and what was going on in sort of a deep state way. And you actually sat down, plotted it out and wrote a fascinating book about it. Yeah, and at first I just thought I was going to write a few articles, and the thing was, it was so pregnant with with stuff that I just couldn't believe journalists weren't chasing it. Of course, it, being around Washington enough, I, I understood why. This is everything to do with Democrats and nothing with Republicans, and all bad things to do with Democrats. So it's not actually shocking that they're not chasing the story, but still, it was just so much there. But the deeper I got into it, I just started to realize that this is a a cyber thriller of, of a real thing that actually exposes the swamp in a way that. I think, I think a lot of people will find actually shocking, even if you already kind of have a cynical view of Washington, which I think most Americans do or should if they don't. Um, as seeing it the, from through this view um, of what these, this whole scandal shows us and the cover-up uh, that ensued from the beginning uh, right to the end, um, the insidiousness of this cover-up, um, I think people will see that and step back in horror and realize we need real reforms and real light shined on Congress that this um, kind of tale exposes. Now, um, how do you pronounce this guy's name? Because I always pronounce it wrong. Uh, Awan? It's Imran Awan. Yeah, he, he's the, the leader of this team um, of mostly Pakistani um, IT people working for Congress, people that got in there without background checks and were paid extraordinary sums to do what they did. Yeah, because um, he was arrested after his brother was arrested, I believe, because I remember talking about that, because I had saw the scandal starting to rise, but none of the mainstream media was uh, placing it. You had to hunt for it to find out what was going on, and it was just little snatches you caught here and there. And, you know, with Debbie, what's her name, Schultz, uh, I was just not even surprised with some of the, the crap that she's pulled. But yet, we thought it was just a small handful of Democrats that, you know, they infiltrated. But it turned out to be more than something like around 40 Democratic representatives. Uh, 44 uh, from the best count I could get um, that this team uh, had been copying data from uh, onto the Democrat caucus server and then to a private Dropbox account. And then to, you know, I, I don't know where else, because this this does lead back to Pakistan and, and Pakistani intelligence. There's there's so much here. They're they're obviously spies, and I've had many uh, contacts in the House in Congress, um, and mostly former former CIA and FBI tell me that this is just obviously um, an ISI, a Pakistani intelligence um, spy ring, um, implanted implanted into Congress, and as it turns out, because of Debbie Washman Schultz's uh, former position, uh, into the DNC right when the DNC was hacked. There, there's there's it's so much here, and it's actually incredible that we talk about this on September 11th because you you watch um, how that went down and, and um, like the trials for, say, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed that uh, Obama actually wanted to make public in New York and how that was kind of shut down and how a lot of those, those hijackers actually haven't gotten trials. Um, there's so much politics wrapped up in this and so much fear uh, with our government at different levels of dealing with Pakistan in, in a strong way um, for, for one very basic reason that most of our, well, our troops in Afghanistan are basically – um, supplied through routes from Pakistan, um, and, the, and the Pakistani people and the Pakistani government is, is anything but our friend. Um, we're just a friend of convenience in certain ways. So there's just so much in this story and all the layers of it, um, and Imran Awan, that just tells us about the politics of now and that it has been over the last couple of decades. 
Yeah, here comes this kid into the United States. Uh, he worked in a restaurant or something like that. Next thing you know, he's this you know superior IT guy. He then gets himself a job doing IT work with members of Congress. He brings in family members, his father, his wife, his brother, and Lord knows how many other people. And suddenly they're earning just as much money as a member of Congress. Almost this is a as job much. That you probably, yep. Yeah. He, he got here now, on, a, on a visa lottery when he was 17 years old and then began bringing in his brothers and his father and, and a lot of his you know, just, just this whole family group that he bought here. Um, and then as he got into Congress, he, he, did, he did get a, an IT degree, um, and then he got into Congress through a contractor. Um, and once he was in, he went solo. He went, he went free of that contractor. Um, as far as we can tell, there's never been a background check done on him. And then when he reached the pay cap, they don't let uh, a, a, a contractor or another person make more than a congressman. He reached that pay cap of 160 something thousand dollars. He started bringing in family members and getting them similar salaries, um, probably taking pieces of that because all the money was really mingled um, with with these people um, in the different houses they owned and in the different properties and and just how it all worked was just very strange and it really can't make any sense of it. Even the car dealership he began with one of his brothers became very convoluted and ended up erupting in court that exposed a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, so it's, there's so much pregnant in there. And wh- why uh, allow a team of foreign nationals, especially from a country like Pakistan, with known links to terror, why let them come into this country and start a cell in Congress with no background checks and, and taking all this data, terabytes of data they were from congressmen, and, and then why the, the cover-up? And, and there, are, there are real reasons for the cover-up, but you have to understand the storyline to, to get that, why this was happening. Um, and it it's, you know, makes me more cynical as a journalist to see just what they did, especially towards the end with the plea deal agreement. It was, it was shocking and disappointing to see what our government did to cover this up to protect themselves. Yeah, now this, this guy, Imran, uh, kind of fancied himself as you know, some sort of a lover boy because uh, he's got a wife here in the United States. He has a wife in Pakistan. Uh, he's got a mistress. Uh, and someone put in the chat room, and it was something that when I was reading the book, I asked myself whether or not he had actually had, and this is from Ron in the chat, whether or not he had a romantic relationship probably with Debbie, what's her name, Schultz. Yeah, that, that's an internet rumor that I, I haven't been able to find anything to, to, to back up, so I don't, I don't say that. But um, there are police reports of two mistresses, one that he allegedly married, or, or, but I, mean, I say alleged, but there are documents inside Pakistan um, in fact, his his wife here, Hina Alvi, a Pakistani national, um, they have they have dual passports. Um, she complained, made a, made a formal complaint inside Pakistan that he'd married illegally another woman in Pakistan. Um, that that woman is also here, and and these two mistresses had both called the police because of domestic violence complaints. Um, so there are police reports um, that that show, yeah, what, what kind of man that he, uh, Imran Awan really was, what he was doing uh, with his money and with these women, and and just just kind of a strange person with um, without a lot of morals. And as I interviewed um, some contacts that would go on the record and some that wouldn't, um, that knew him, uh, former tenants and family members and things, um, they again and again told me that Imran Awan would do anything for money. Wow. Yeah, this guy was one really slimy guy. And when you interviewed a lot of these people that knew him, I think almost every single one of them said that he was really slimy, that, that they just creeped out over him. Yeah, from his family members to his tenants um, to people that worked with him inside the house, other IT administrators and things. 
um, they, they, they just were freaked out by him. And some things he said about what he could do to people if they were back in Pakistan, that he could have them arrested, that, that he controlled them. He, he had ISI protection uh, when he was back in Pakistan. And there were payments that he, he gave to a local police department, which is in a big city uh, where he comes from um, back there. So there's a money trail leading to the authorities back there, which is another link why this is an ISI kind of thing, a Pakistan intelligence thing. Um, so he's, he was threatening and weird, and, and yeah, he freaked people out in, in strange ways. And people that IT aides that took over offices that yeah, he used to control, used to work in, they went in there, and there were no, no records uh, for the devices that he was buying. He was doing a lot of, um, there were a lot of devices. There were, and there were plenty of paperwork, congressional paperwork to show this, that he was literally stealing. He was buying congressional funds, keeping it just under $500 so he wouldn't have to report it through a congressional system, and then taking those devices. And some of those devices were found on several of his properties um, by tenants. Um, and reported and giving back uh, to the FBI or Capitol Police. Um, so he, he had this procurement scheme going on. Um, and so these, these IT aides who took over his offices, they would be like, the office is trashed, and that's cool. They would say trashed. Um, and they couldn't even believe he was doing things like when they, they got the, the phones uh, that the staffers were using, and they looked at the login credentials, they found out that he was actually spying on congressional staffers. Um, by using his own Apple ID for, for, their, for their passwords. For, so they, they log in through his thing. So he could go in and actually see all their texts, all their emails, everything. Now, why would he do that unless he was spying? Yeah, it, what was funny is, is that um, when he was finally fired by Debbie, what's her name, uh, Schultz, um, the IT guys that were part of the pool, because there was a pool of them that, you know, the representatives can pick from and say, all right, fine, I want this person to work on the system. They were not allowed to work on anyone else's thing. They, were, they would not hire them. So now who are these, like Debbie, what's her name, and uh, Bracera and others, who is actually now doing the work on this stuff? Is it someone that has been finally vetted from the pool or, or what? Yeah, uh, Congress has quietly changed its procedures, um, supposedly now to put people through background checks, but they – they won't state that publicly. Capitol Police will make no comment on any of those procedures or the changes in procedures. Um, but this has been going on for a while. They realize this is a, a very big problem that these people are brought in with no background check and see everything a congressman is doing. Um, it, it's it's pretty dirty. I mean, they can they cannot just see their emails, but they're coming and going emails. But just imagine what they could have on these congressmen. I mean, these congressmen, um, these, these all Democrats, have been very afraid to speak. I've literally had them run away from me in the halls of Congress. I mean, literally run from me uh, because they did not want to talk about this issue. Uh, it makes you wonder, does Imran Awan have dirt on them? And in their emails could be anything. I mean, a congressman, just how they work, will often take different positions publicly than they will do privately. Or they might have uh, emails back and forth to another member of their own party um, saying something about a controversial bill. Who knows what might be in that? We've seen when emails have popped up from, say, Hillary Clinton's campaign, and we saw just how dirty they can be just by a few things, how much politically they can really affect someone's career. So who knows what Imran Awan has on all his congressmen? Or who knows how involved they were in all this kind of stuff? Um, me, I, I tend to think probably a lot of them were, were innocent and just pretty gullible and stupid to do what they were doing. But now they must realize just how much is at stake with this guy could have everything. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I was I was laughing at that uh, part in the book where you're describing approaching these congressmen and women and how they would literally run to the private elevators to get away from you. And the scene you depicted had me laughing because you are a physically fit guy. <laughs> I would say they were probably more like waddling <laughs> rather than running. 
Yeah, well, these these aren't typically young people, and they're right. So they're yeah they're they're it gets surrounded by their staffers, and they get escorted away, and they're moving as fast as they can, and it 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 can be a little humorous. Right. <laughs> it was. It seems like um, D.C. is full of spies, and as we all know, the White House has its shares of spies. You know, people spying on Trump, and of course, the most infamous, infamous one now is this um, anonymous. What is it that Trump can do to kind of like bring this buying stuff to a halt inside the White House? Yeah, that's a leaker. And I I would differentiate between a leaker and a spy. I mean, it's pretty clear uh, that this this group, Imre Awan and his group, was working with Pakistani intelligence. Um, You look at someone in the Trump White House who is leaking for their own ego and their own positioning. um, That's a very different kind of person. And both can can do harm. um, And and I think both uh, should be ousted. Um, you know, no one should be inside. If you don't want to work for the administration, you shouldn't be working for the administration. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be in there playing it both ways in order to get your way, which is this anonymous person is doing. So I don't. To me, it's, it's not a it's not a laudable thing. I don't look at this person as an honorable individual. I mean, leave and make your make your case. That's fine. Write your book. That, that's fine. That's the American way. But to be inside hiding and do this, I think this person needs to be rooted out and fired. Well, what about the fact that this person um, identified? with being a part of the resistance. That's why I called him a spy. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, inside embedded in, into this administration is a person that thinks they're resisting the administration they're supposed to be working for. That, that's disloyal, and I, uh, you know, I, I don't want to go so far to say this person should have jail time, but they certainly should be fired, um, and they have no honor. Should be shot. In old days, they would have been shot. <laughs> Well, I don't know. American politics has always been dirty. You know, we used to elect um, a vice president and a president of, of different parties, you know, that, right in the beginning, where they would just be nasty to each other, I mean, John Adams and so on in the beginning. So this is it's part of our DNA in a way, but it's also just, just incredibly deplorable. Yeah. Johnson and, and Lincoln, yeah. Well, yeah, well, know, it was changed by the time Lincoln got in, but right, the first few administrations had different of different parties. It's, it's incredible. Well, you know, in your book, you explain how Imran was able to come here because the Immigration Act of 1990, but people don't understand how that really changed the immigration process. You know, we think, you know, it's still the way it used to be where someone came over, they had to have a visa, the expired, you had to go back home. Uh, but this is not the case anymore. Once you're here, and didn't he become, I believe you said a naturalized citizen, correct? Not a yes. naturalized yeah. A.M. Yeah, yeah. So that way he was able to bring over all these other family members. So this is what we have to change. We have to also change the immigration policy so we're vetting people coming to our shores. And this is a perfect example of why Trump is correct about you know being stricter on immigration. Yeah, the visa lottery specifically tries to bring people in from countries that they consider underrepresented, where people aren't applying to come here. So it goes and, and recruits people from countries, and this is in the bill, um, that we aren't getting Im- enough immigrants from, according to percentages and whoever would dictate that. Um, so, we, so he was, in a way, recruited um, to come in here. And then through chain migration, he's able to bring then his, his whole extended family, or his whole family, and his brothers and sisters, uh, his brothers and father, and his, his, his uh, father, his, his mother, and, um, and so on. I guess it's, it actually wasn't his mother's, his second wife. His mother was killed in, in Pakistan in a car accident. But he was able to bring in all these people, which, which happens constantly, right? And where's their loyalty? And I've had uh, former CIA people, people who who spent their their whole career in the Middle East and were experts on the Middle East, tell me, look, this person coming at 17 
is not a loyal uh, citizen to the United States. They were grown up. They grew up in Pakistan, which is hardly a friendly American country. I mean, look at Pakistan. There, uh, off the top of my head, I think there's four people still in jail for helping us catch Osama bin Laden. Okay, Pakistan jailed them for the crime of helping us catch Osama bin Laden, still now in jail. Um, if you look at polls inside Pakistan, America doesn't poll that well. Um, there, there is still, I mean, the Taliban is sheltered in northern Pakistan still. There, there's a lot of problems with Pakistan uh, right now, even though in some sense they're our allied, they're not. Um, so you get, you get a guy like Imran Awan coming in at the age he did, and he's hardly a loyal citizen. He might, who knows, he might become one, but you're not really recruiting from a pool of, of typical loyal citizens. And this is what CIA former are telling me. That this is this person is not just susceptible to an ISI um, contact and then to become a spy. He's the exact kind of person they they typically go out and try to recruit. It would be actually be very strange. And this is from quoting say people. It'd be strange if Pakistan intelligence didn't come and talk to Imran Awan, given the position he had, and try to bring him over uh, into their side. Yeah, but people also don't understand that Pakistan, Afghanistan, all the states, they're more tribal. They're more loyal to the tribe than they are to their country. Uh, so if he's doing this for money, he's doing it for himself, to better himself tribally. He's, he doesn't care about nationality, honestly. It would be tribal and then Islam. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's tribal. You have to look at their tribe, their region, their city. Um, and he's from an area of Pakistan that is known to have terror links. I mean, a lot of Pakistan does, but he is from a region that's known for it. Um, so this is he, – he, he followed his family structure back, and, and you start to see, even see the dirt. And I, and I had a hard time putting some of this in the book because it was hard to completely substantiate, though I had some, some contacts in Pakistan giving me the details on it, about the, the land that he bought there with his father um, and how that, that it became a very contentious thing even inside Pakistan because they'd, they'd stolen his family. This is this according to the farmers they took it from. They'd stolen this land from the farmers, never paid them for the land, even though they, they said they would, and then started working development up on it. And, and uh, Imran Awan still has big financial interest with that property. Um, so it's all tied back, and that goes into local politics. The only way you get some of that stuff is to, is to have the local officials on your side, which takes payoffs. So there's this whole relationship that's going on there, uh, money-wise, back to Pakistan, that it's, it's hard to vet for a Westerner because we just don't think that way. Uh, but when you start to get into it with people in Pakistan, you realize, oh, this is all woven together. Now, uh the way that he was able to also work his system within the House of Representatives, there's something called shared employees. And I, I believe that this is also something that's been revamped. Exactly what the heck is a shared employee and why do these representatives have them? Well, senators typically have enough staff because they'll have several offices back in their home state where they need a full-time IT person. So they don't typically have shared employees. House members often do, and this is across both parties, and, and this has been how, it, how it's been forever, because they don't need a full-time IT aide for a, a one congressional office in one small congressional district. Um, so they'll, they'll share an employee. That employee will put that together through the House and maybe get five or six contracts. Well, that will put together enough money for them. And they often, the shared employees actually often make more money than a full-time IT person, but they don't have some of the benefits the full-time IT person has. But they're still, they're making, on average, about twice what – what the, uh, the, the what a full time person will make. Um, Imran A1 was probably making about three times what the average one is making. He's making around 160 plus thousand dollars a year um, through year after year in the house, and then bringing on other sta other family members to also make that money. And a lot of those people were, are, were I mean, in every which way I could prove it, um, were, were no show employees. 
They didn't have IT degrees. They, they didn't have that expertise. Um, they weren't seen in the congressional buildings. Their work was being done. And this is also illegal because um, Imran Awan or Hina Alvia's wife um, would have to, if they were on this congressional payroll, would have to do that work. Um, but they would put the other person's name there and they would show up and, and, and do the work. So they were doing the work when, and taking the money and, and then probably giving a certain percentage of that money back to that family member. So it was it was a big scheme um, for them to even make more money than they were supposed to be allowed to make while working in Congress. So that's just one part of how these people were dirty. Well, in other words, according to the law, the way the law reads is that if he is the IT person assigned to work that account, he cannot substitute someone else for himself. But that's exactly, exactly. what he did. So he's taking someone that has no background check, no authorization, should not even be in the building uh, to come in and do his work for him. And Congress has given itself the, the power to hire any contractor they want. Um, and in this case, the way it was working at the time and everyone was doing this, um, an, an official IT contractor, a company um, that came into the house, there were six of them um, at that time, um, would have to go through background checks. But an independent contractor wouldn't have to go through background checks, which is a big, strange loophole. Um, but they have allegedly fixed now that they won't give me any answer on the record to that effect. Um, so Imran Awan was able to just to willy-nilly bring in his family members, put their name on the books, but do the work for them, and then get the paychecks for their alleged work, um, even though none of these people went through background checks. So what's the excuse the Capitol Police are giving for not doing a background check on these groups of thugs? None. They won't talk. They won't give any anything. Um, I've I've tried from every angle to, to get them to talk, um, and they would they would at first say there was an ongoing investigation, which of course is no longer the case. Um, now they they just won't answer any any queries whatsoever. Um, and the problem is, uh, Freedom of Information Act requests uh, really go nowhere um, with them. Congress has exempted itself from Freedom of Information Act requests. Um, Whereas the, the FBI has, has told me recently, just a couple of weeks ago, I denied another FOIA request telling me that there's an ongoing investigation. Well, I said, well, what ongoing investigation? has been a plea deal agreement. This is over. So they told me to go to the Department of Justice, um, which so far um, has, has not gotten back to me. Um, but they've denied me before. Um, so there's across the board here for a lot of uh, deep and, and some very political reasons and some some you know national uh, security interest um, reasons. Um, there there's a just complete shutdown on this story, and I'm talking on I'm talking about these people. I've had government officials meet me. I mean, in like these weird you know um, kind of cloak and dagger kind of meetings, and through either through encryption if we were going through computers, or meeting in Washington, and it feels like a deep throat meeting where they're just scared to death, and they're telling me everyone tells them not to talk about this. This Imran A1 thing just is, is scary to everybody, and, and they just want to shut it down. Um, so it's it's across the board. The system has been trying to stop this, just to kill this story as quickly as possible. You know, Frank. as I was reading the book, I, I just want to make the point here. As I was reading the book, I just said, you know, you just can't make this stuff up. And you, you go into details as you were saying that he was buying this equipment and he was actually stealing it. And uh, who was it? Was it Louis Gohmert or someone else had said that he tried to get rid of an ancient typewriter and he had to explain, you know, what he was doing with it and why he was moving it. And, and he went through jumping through hoops about an old typewriter where all this, like something like $120,000 worth of government equipment just went into thin air. That, that's only from one congressional office. We don't know how many other offices had equipment missing. Um, probably a lot more than 120,000, but we know about one write-off because that went public 
um, on 120,000 worth of goods. And that, that's incredible that Congress would just allow that to be written off. I mean, yeah, you're right, Louis Gomer, that he, he said an old couch, an old typewriter. He took him years to finally get them off the books, and he'd never even seen them. They're from some previous congressman who had his office. You know, so it, it's, it's funny that why was this team of IT administrators from Pakistan allowed to get away with all of this? What do they have on somebody? What's, what's being hidden from us right now? Man, it, yeah, it's really bad. The government, seems, government seems pretty jacked up to me. I mean, we have um, Congress who don't want to do their job. We have agency agencies that seem to have more power than our congressional members. Is there ever going back to a time where we can trust our you know agencies, especially the Justice Department? Yeah, not without a lot of light shined on, on, on cases like this. Um, and this is a case where Congress is really protecting itself, because just imagine if there was a real investigation. You have 44 members of Congress, they're, all their chiefs of staff, and a lot of their other staffers. Um, all those people would have to testify to some degree. They would be deposed if there's you know, criminal prosecution, um, or, or at least to testify, to, to talk. And that, that stuff can come out. Um, as, as, as stuff comes out, then what you're doing is you're seeing a light right shined right through their staffs, who they hired, what they were doing. I mean, things like the, the slush fund they used to pay off people accusing congressmen of sexual harassment. You know, who, who, we still don't really know who, who used that slush fund. Um, what if that came out? And what else might be exposed through all of that kind of truth-telling to happen in that, that light which was uh, so brightly shined if, if, if this investigation did what it's supposed to do on this, in these congressmen and their staffs? This would be a huge scandal all over the newspapers, and stuff would come out that we just we can't even really imagine right now. It's that kind of thing that they were trying to shut down um, by just making this case go away as quickly as possible. Yeah, because uh, as soon as Debbie What's-Her-Name Schultz finally did fire him, the race card was pulled out. Uh, Islamophobic, you know, race, racially bigoted, uh, immediately started to come out and attack anyone who criticized her and what was going on. I found that absolutely stunning. She was she, she showed a lot of fear, um, and I and I've talked to her chief of staff, and I tried to talk to her, and I've get answers, um, but but then talking to other people who are around that that orbit, um, the amount of fear that they were telling me about uh, was pretty phenomenal. So there's something big being hidden there, I and mean, the way she wanted that laptop back that she that it was allegedly left by Imran Awan in, in a congressional building, uh, found by Capitol Police, and then being used in, was supposed to be used in, this, in the prosecution of this thing. Um, it, it's, it's amazing what she did. She threatened ca- the, the chief of Capitol Police with consequences if she didn't get it back uh, right then. Uh, there's it, so much there that they're, they're not telling us that she's scared of and other Democrats are, are afraid of in this case. Um, that I was actually mo- most surprised, not not by that, because they have a lot to fear with all that, all their emails and things like that come out that mRNA one certainly uh, had, if not still has. But I was surprised that the only about six Republican congressmen were really willing to talk about this story. Uh, the Republican establishment would not talk about it, and the GOP wouldn't wouldn't talk about it. I, and I approached them from many angles. I have a lot of sources that take me right to the top of the, and and they just would not talk about this. I don't think they also wanted the light shined on congressional power and the staffing and so on. The question is, is that, you know, the extent of their spying and the extent of their reach was absolutely amazing uh, to get into anyone's computer. And the, they did this through one main computer, uh, one main representative, and just branched out from there where they had access, as I understand it, to every single representative's 
device, whether it's a computer, smartphone, I, whatever it is. Uh, so now you have these committees like the intelligence committee or uh, any other you know, things that should be kept secret, which is government information, you know, about our security, about what is going on, even having heads up on upcoming legislation that he can make money on. The extent of his reach and knowledge and spying is really scary. Imran Awan once bragged that he could change the U.S. president, which I, I think that's, you know, that's hyperbole, but that's how arrogant he was. That's how much information he had at hand because he, him, he and his team were in, were in, the, in, in the offices of 44 congressmen. Uh, and include people on the intelligence committee and other big committees. Um, that included the, the, the chair of the Democratic Caucus, then, then uh, Xavier Becerra, um, which he's been really coy and running away from this story. Um, now he's the Attorney General of California. Um, so they were in there, and, and through that, um, who knows what information you're able to grab. And while Imran Awan was uh, working for Debbie Washington Schultz as she ran the DNC, uh, we know he had access to the passwords and everything on all of her devices. So what then did he have from the DNC? You know, was he... The leaker. What, what did he, does he have something else on them that we don't know about that is making Debbie Washerman Schultz and the rest of this the Democratic Party so afraid? You know, it's just there's so much there that, that I, you know, and I got to a lot of it in this book. But there's the stuff that you just you just you have to keep pushing. And I, and and I'm as I worked on this book and I and I coming out with this book and I'm like, is this right? Should I even be bringing this out? I'm going to bring out a lot of new stuff here, but it's still a lot we don't know. And I had. I had a lot of interesting people tell me, uh, former CIA and, and former end journalists and this kind of thing, and say, you know what, someone has to throw a, a wrench into this machinery and say, no, there's a lot going on here, because if we don't push this, um, it's just how, how do we then fix the system? It takes light to keep our system honest, and there's just no light being shined on the system that is clearly showed in this whole case. Now, and your book is going to be released on October 2nd, so if anyone's looking for your book, Spies in Congress, Inside the Democrats' uh, Cover-Up Cyber Scandal, um, they can pre-order it, but it will be finally released October 2nd. So this is a pre-release interview, guys. So you're hearing about this book before it hits the shelves, and then it's going to hit the fan, I'm telling you that, because in here is just amazing information. Because it's not just uh, the cyber that's on there. It's the sex. It's the land deals. Uh, it's, it's, it's got everything in it. It was almost like a Robert Ludlum novel, novel, the way it's reading. But this is real life. This was happening over a number of years. I'm trying to remember the time span because he was finally fired in 2017, and he started doing the IT work in what year was that? I think it was 2003. I've thought it might have been four. But, yeah, it's, it was over a decade. Um, and collectively – uh, he and his, his staff made over $5 million from, from, the, from the House, from Congress, um, you know, while they're doing lots of other things, also making money in, in, I would think, procurement schemes and so on. It was pretty well proven. So, yeah, they, they were benefiting and living off this system for a very long time with Congress looking the other way. Yeah. Now, Debbie, what's her name? Schultz didn't want this to come public, uh, what was going on, so she tried to hide it. But believe it or not, the Washington Post broke the story, but they didn't realize what they were breaking. And now they're absolutely silent on it. Yeah, they didn't really break the story. They finally talked about it. Um, it did come out in several facts because you, you, they pretty much had to say something eventually because they, when they were thrown off the House system um, for giving false information to Capitol Police, they gave a fake copy of a server, the Democratic Caucus server, that 
has been missing, um, and that's become contentious with the Department of Justice. Now they say it was never missing. Well, no, there's plenty of, of information and in, in interviews to say it, it went missing. Um, they gave a false copy of that server to Capitol Police, and that's when Capitol Police said, we've been investigating them with the FBI uh, for at least six months, probably a year before that. Um, and they said, well, okay, now they're giving us false information. We have to do something. So they threw them off that February. They threw them off the congressional system. And it, Debbie Washman Schultz kept Imran Awan and Hannah Alvey, his wife, um, on her payroll anyway. I mean, a lot of the Democrats started firing them, but she kept them on their payroll until he was arrested the next July. So from February to July, he's still being paid while Hannah Alvey runs with their children um, and 12000 in cash and uh, other monies um, to Pakistan. Um, He's not arrested until late July when he tries to also flee away to Pakistan to his money and land deals he has over there, trying to flee justice. Um, that's when, okay, that's when the big surge hit, and, and some media had to talk about it, and the Washington Post, New York Times, so on, just kind of downplayed it as much as possible, saying there's nothing to see here, folks, and even said the terabytes of data, which is just a, an amazing amount of data. Um, and you're talking like 250,000 worth of, if you just add up the number of photos it would take, it would take 250,000 to get to a terabyte. Um, just a regular size photograph. Um, so it's just amazing amount of data. The Washington Post said, well, it was just homework they were putting up on this. Well, why would they be putting their kids' homework <laughs> onto congressional <laughs> servers? It doesn't make any sense at all. It, the whole, I mean, they're, they're trying to look the other way as much as possible because this scandal has everything to do with Democrats. Absolutely. And the Republicans don't want it to come out either, which uh, if you want to defeat and you want to take the House and the Senate back solidly, hey, let this thing explode. Let it explode in their face big time. But they're not allowing that to happen. And, you know, it, it is shocking because not only was he stealing the data, he was uploading it to Dropbox, which, again, is against the law. You can't put data, government data, on a non-government you know, location, secure location. But they were putting it out into, there into the cloud. Right. A lot of the Republican establishment also doesn't want to go after this. They don't want to drain the swamp. They, they don't see it that way. And, and as I sat down with, with them, those who were on the record, they would, they would tell me, you know, I, I just don't – we don't want to go there. Um, we have another, another investigations to do. We're just going to let this one go away. Um, meanwhile, there are, there are some members of Congress who really got it um, and were being very loud and vocal about it. And, and thankfully, President Trump saw this as something real um, and, and was tweeting about it, talking about it, calling – Imran Awan, the Pakistani mystery man, because he, he knows there, there's a lot more there than we're being told. He's a Pakistani a spy is what he, he was. That's what he and is. the funny thing is his wife was allowed to leave with $12,000 in cash. Again, that's not how the law goes. She should have had that cash confiscated from her. Yeah, you can't leave with more than 10000 unless you declare it, and she hadn't filled out the forms to declare it. And she was obviously, and this is according to the FBI's affidavit, she was obviously leaving with the intention of not coming back. She had all sorts of cardboard boxes. Uh, she would pulled her kids out of school at very short notice without telling teachers and that sort of thing. Uh, everything led to the, the idea, and this is the FBI saying this. Um, they didn't say much, but they actually said this, that she clearly wasn't going to come back. She didn't have an intention to come back until, for whatever reason, the Department of Justice flipped. They changed attorneys. They, they decided not to prosecute the case. Um, and they made some kind of deal with her and said, come back, you're not going to get... Uh, anything charged against you, these, these charges are going to be dropped. So then she flies back in, um, and everything seems okay with her. Um, so they were doing step-by-step, step, the Department of Justice, in this case, uh, to kill this thing um, for, for a lot of reasons. I mean, some legitimate reasons, like I, I said, because of, of our relationship with Pakistan, but also for a lot of crass political reasons, 
um, not wanting to disrupt the establishment, not wanting to harm the congressmen who were uh, had employed these, these people, and probably, I, I think, not wanting a lot of this data to come out um, that I think this, this team of IT people could come could bring out if they wanted to. So they, they just wanted to whitewash this as quickly as possible. So if you're looking at a deep state thing, and, and I, as a journalist, I hate using that phrase because it's just so it's, it's more nuanced than just a big deep state. This is an example of the establishment slash deep state. Um, I think they're working together in, in a weird way um, in order to kill a story that could do a lot of harm to their power. Frank. Yeah, and you had a you had an uphill battle on exposing this. Uh, had lawyers attack you and everything else. Uh, Curtis, go ahead with your question. Yeah, it's it's my opinion that um, once the midterms elections are over, and if um, we increase our margins in in the House and in the Senate, I believe things are going to change in D.C. Is that your sentiment? Well, I sure hope so. Um, I, I don't see them bringing up things like this and, and really trying to I think that the Republican Party, even if they win this election, and, I, and I'm a conservative, I sure hope they do, they have a rift, uh, just like the Democrats do, they have to overcome. And they don't seem to, to want to bring in uh, the Tea Party faction that's still there, the Freedom Caucus. Um, instead, they, they want to marginalize them. And, and, and in order to change this kind of thing, we have to teach the Republican Party has to learn um, that they actually have to um, be, be a little more honest and let the light in on, on these kinds of cases. Um, and on there, what their power is and where the legislation is and so on, um, in order for us to, to have the free and fair society we should have. It's, right now, the bureaucracy is growing too powerful, and there's just too many there who don't want to take it on. Instead, they just want to feather their own nest. Yeah, may, maybe I should clarify myself. I, I was really speaking of Trump. Um, you know, he's kind of like been holding back, you know, especially when it comes mm. to people like Sessions. But I think um, once he has a majority... Well, we have the majority now, but I mean, once we increase it in Congress, because a lot of people are going to owe um, Trump because he's come out and stomped for them. And I, I, I just think that um, after the midterms, um, he's going he's gonna to go after quite a few people that he's been holding back on. And things I think is going to change. He's gonna I'm, be I'm inclined to agree with you, and it's, especially if he gets a different attorney general. Right. Well, do you think that if he does get a different attorney general that he'll open an investigation on this IT scandal? Boy, it's going to take some some I doubt it. It's going to you know, I wish he would and he has been very interested in this and I I'm just by based on his tweets, I think he wanted a different outcome in this case, but it's going to take something louder. Something is going to have to come out that's just going to make even the mainstream media turn around and actually talk about this a little bit for Congress and so on to get behind it. And even with Trump saying, well, wait a second, what's this all about? There's going to have to be more. I, but I, I do think there's just so much being hidden on this case, just from what I've seen and the context I've had it, within the Department of Justice, that it's not going to take a lot to come out. They have hundreds of pages of interviews and other data that, that I'm trying to get to with Freedom of Information Act requests, um, but they're hiding right now. But just pieces of that come out. Um, it's it's so dirty that yeah you're you're right then it could explode and then they'll have to deal with this scandal. Yeah, because you know there's some of the strange things that went on in the in this whole uh, scandal here is that the attaché case that was left in the Rayburn building and it was funny I was reading that passage and when I was in the Rayburn building I had walked past that that area where that used to be the payphone booth and I, I kind of chuckled to myself that 
it was still standing there. Um, I was on my way to a Congressman Wilson's office, and I just thought it was funny that I saw it. And then when I was reading the book, I'm going, oh, my goodness, I could practically actually picture this, <laughs> this briefcase sitting there. In the post-9-11 days, you, the second you see a package unattended, you, you say something. So here's this attache case containing, going on with this attache case, and what's your idea and why it was left there at that time? Yeah, I find it hard to believe that it was Imran Awan who left it there. First of all, it's not a congressional building that, that Debbie Washman Schultz worked in, which is the only person in Congress he was working for at the time. It, it was left around midnight. I mean, why? Um, it seems like an enemy of his. I mean, and it was left with letters to the U.S. attorney and copies of Imran Awan's passport. I mean, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Why, why would Imran Awan be carrying that in the first place, um, all that kind of stuff put together? So it, it, it seems to me that somebody was was ticked off at him because he'd underpaid some of his people. Um, somebody was ticked off enough to try to get him and leave, leave this stuff for Capitol Police to find, to use as something to go and get Imran Awan. So it, I don't know, but it, it, that's not come out yet, and Capitol Police won't even say now, and I've just asked him again, um, where is that laptop? Have you now given it back to Debbie Washerman Schultz now that the plea deal has occurred? Does she now have, is it in her possession, or do you still have it as evidence for something else? They won't even answer that question. It's really funny because, you know, that was the laptop that Debbie, what's her name, Schultz was yelling at the Capitol Police. And I remember watching uh, when there were, I'm trying to remember, because I remember seeing her on TV attack the Capitol Police officer that was telling her, no, it's being held for investigation. And then she threatened him uh, publicly. And I, I was shaking my head over that. So I was, that's what turned me on to, you know, finding out more about what was going on. I'm glad you wrote this book. Uh, but it's showing me things that I was not aware of. And I thought I've kind of followed this pretty closely. And it's an excellent book, Spies in Congress, Inside the Democrats' Cover-Up Cyber Scandal, that's going to be released on October 2nd. But it even goes further where a retired Marine gets involved. And and that's when Debbie What's-Her-Name went on the, the attack, unbelievably strong attack against this Marine. Yeah, he found um, he, he rented a, a house uh, from Imran Awan. He rented it right after Imran um, was kicked off the house server in Cap at Capitol. So he lost most of his money, uh, most of his income at the time. He was only then working for Debbie Washington Schultz. So he was looking to, to make more money. So he pulled out of one of his homes, the old multiple homes in the Washington area, and rented it to this uh, U.S. Marine. Um, and actually, he looked for, for military people. He rented several properties to former military and, and active military people um, uh, by, by putting their, their bond on militarybyowner.com. Um, so he's looking for these kind of people, probably because these people tend to actually pay their rent. You know, they tend to be better renters. Imran Awan is any a lot of things, but he's not stupid. Um, so this U.S. Marine comes in, and the house is still full of stuff. Some of the furniture and things he actually bought from Imran Awan. He's, okay, here's a couch, or here's a chair. Okay, I'll buy this from you. But as he went into the garage... He found all of these devices, phones and computers, and all of them were in these boxes with government markings on them. And being a, a U.S. Marine, he was used to seeing government stuff. And he said, wait a second, these are government barcodes. This is all government items. This is, this is bad stuff. What's really going on here? Um, at that time, Imran Awan was actually giving him a fake name, was calling himself something else. And so he didn't even realize he was dealing with Imran Awan at the time. And so he's, he's baffled by the whole thing. Um, he ends up calling... Uh, the FBI to report all this stuff, and somebody showed up. Uh, he's not sure if it was FBI or Capitol Police. They showed him plainclothes government officials and took all those devices away. 
Um, so all, that, all those devices disappeared. Meanwhile, Imran Awan is getting into a fight with him and actually sued him um, on, on grounds for, for, different, uh, for staining carpets and doing everything he could to attack this. This is Imran Awan's personality, this, this former U.S. Marine. And the Marine is, is just a total stand-up guy. He's a Democrat. You know, he's a black guy. He's a Democrat. He's like, I'm not a Trump guy, but there's, there's so much rotten here. And Imran Awan is a dirty, dirty guy. And he's using language I can't use here with you. Um, so it's just it's so clear that his, his you know his interactions with Imran Awan were so negative that he just really thinks he's a scumbag to put it lightly, um, and he's actually said several times he would like to see Imran Awan put in jail. Wow, they, they, he really went after this poor Marine tooth and nail. But hey, <laughs> you don't go after a Marine like that; he'll come right back at you. Right. Oh, and, man. But even in the plea deal agreement with Imran Awan, the Department of Justice says there was no missing items. Well, okay, what about all this stuff from, from Taggart? What about all this stuff he gave over to the Capitol Police or FBI? You know, what about all those items? It's, it's, it's absolutely clear they're items. And there's another uh, a person, a, a, a former, uh, well, she, she's former now Air Force, um, who'd rented from Imran Awan, who also found a lot of stuff, uh, in, the, in, in her case, in an attic. Um, you know, that, that's been mostly unreported uh, today. So, and she doesn't want to go on the record. But um, it's, so there's, there's a clear bunch of, of cases here where this guy was stealing this stuff, and for them to put in the plea deal agreement, the Department of Justice, that there was nothing missing and, and that that's a, that's a total fabrication by, as they, they call them, the, the, the crazy right. Um, it's, it's so refutable uh, and so clear that when these facts do come out, um, the Department of Justice in this case is going to be shown for what it is, being very dirty and very political. Frank, I just want to make the point here. When this Marine found all that equipment, it had the government barcodes on them. And this guy with something like 24, 25 years in the Marine Corps as a technician, he, the second he saw these, these uh, pieces of equipment, he recognized it exactly for what it was. And his reaction was, I'm not touching them. I'm not counting them. I am not opening them. I'm not doing anything. I'm calling the authorities immediately. The second I see this, my Marine Corps training says, you pick up the phone, you report it, and let them come and take it. Exactly right. He didn't want to play with it, didn't want to touch it, and he said that very strongly. No, just turn it over. That's my training. You don't, you don't touch something that's, that's not yours, that's government equipment. You turn it over to the proper authorities. Frank. Go ahead, Curtis. In your estimate, um, as citizens, how afraid should we be of our government right now? I think very, and, and I'm you know, I've always been cynical, and I, I did a lot of reporting on the Fast and Furious scandal before this and, and just saw just how dirty government could be uh, with a massive cover-up going right up to the White House. And it, that, that really bothered me. The, the attorney general in that case never paid for what um, he was obviously very involved in. Um, and then I get into this case, um, and, I'm, and I'm speaking to U.S. attorneys, and I'm, I'm speaking to so many people behind the scenes, and I, I just couldn't help getting even more and more cynical about the direction of our government. I don't want to sound like a conspiracy guy. As you'll see in this book – Every fact in there is knocked down. Every, everything I don't put it in the book unless I can nail it down uh, concretely, because that's the, the kind of journalist I, I prefer to be. I'm not a conspiracy guy, um, but the deeper I got into this, the more cynical I got, and the darker part of the swamp that I got into, I just I was appalled. You know, this sounds like like Hollywood just going to an extreme to write, to make a good movie. No, this is this is actually all real. We should be afraid. Yeah, because you mentioned Cheryl Atkinson and Fast and Furious, and we were one of the first people you know, to be on top of that. Um, and it's still being shoved underneath the rug, Fast and Furious. And uh, you wrote that uh, – I highlighted this one because I wanted to make sure I 
got with this one. Uh, you wrote, there is an element of Orson Welles' dark 1941 film, Citizen Kane, in the political intrigues and of the party machine exposed. There is fraud, theft, corruption, behind-the-scenes political machinations, international intrigue. Page six-style spectacles we haven't gotten to yet, and a cover-up underway to protect Washington power all rolled into the story. This is hardly just some trifling case of bank fraud with which Imram Awan and Haina Awan would later be charged. Um, and that's, that's the, the sad part, is that their plea deal was just for bank fraud when they were actually enemies of the state. Yeah, and that's what's so interesting about this whole case, is that Imran Awan, because Debbie Washman Schultz ran the DNC, and she was so powerful, and uh, his team also worked for the Democratic Caucus, um, you know, Xavier Becerra at the time, um, he was just into every little facet for over a decade of government, of these Democrats and what they're involved in, the Democratic National Committee and so on. Uh, he's involved in it all to the extent where I had other ITAs tell me we couldn't believe it. They, they told me that uh, Imran Awan is getting invited to like all the A-list parties. One of them he's actually pictured with, with, pres- with former President Bill Clinton. I mean, he's, he's going to all these big-time parties, and, and these IT aides, and I'm talking about some current ones telling me this, they're like, we're not invited to these big Washington shindigs. How was he so popular and so powerful and in such a position? And IT aid, I mean, that's basically a plumber to these congressmen. They show up to fix a computer when it's not working. That's all they really are. I mean, hopefully they go through background checks before they get there because they have access to all this data. But they're not, they're not stars and celebrities that get, get invited to the big parties in, in Washington, D.C., yet Imran Awan was at that level. I mean, so if you watch his story and you go through this whole thing and how dirty he was, it really gives you a picture of the whole Washington establishment and the dirt in it and the swamp and the whole thing all wrapped into one seedy, weird international crime thriller of a tale. Yeah, I mean, tax evasion, they weren't even charged with. Uh, Some of these other falsified uh, banking loans, you know, it's, it's crazy how much stuff this guy was into. And then you add in the domestic violence with his wife, supposed second wife, his mistresses. At one point, he had one mistress he had kept locked into the apartment. She was fearing for her life. The police show up, uh, and she said she's being kept as a sex slave. You know, and all this stuff this guy got away with. A simple background check would have exposed it in a heartbeat. Yeah, you even look at the car dealership he had with his brother where they lost over a million dollars and were been sued multiple times, were in court. I, when, I, when I talk to the CIA people, they're like, a car dealership in the States, that, that's, what, that's what money launderers do, especially international stuff. That's one of the top things we look at uh, for a foreign uh, entity coming in here because it gives them uh, background checks on Americans. It gives them legitimacy. It gives them an easy way to turn money over and hide money, which is what he was doing with other car dealerships in his vicinity. He literally called his CIA, kind of ironic, you know, Cars International yeah. A was what it was called. Um, and his brother, and he, he, was, he ran it for a time, um, according to testimony, um, uh, while they were full-time IT aides for Congress. I mean, how was that possible? I mean, any background check would have pulled that up and said, whoa, red flags everywhere. I mean, the, the Capitol Police should have been in there throwing him right out of that, not even just letting him into those congressional buildings any longer. It, it got so bad. It, it just, I mean, you start to go down the tail of this thing, it's like a cliche of a bad spy story. You know, my question would be that, 
didn't the CIA get any whiff of this at all? Because here he's operating for more than a decade. Wouldn't they pick up on the fact that some of their uh, Pakistani intelligence agency would have information they shouldn't have? Where are they getting it? Where, where is the leak coming from? Did they ever smell anything? Right. He took $100,000 from a man with known links to Hezbollah. You know, a, a terrorist group, according to, to us, you know. So, yeah, there should have been. The CIA won't say. Uh, the FBI is not revealing very much, um, though they've given me a couple of off-the-record little little interviews. But they're not saying a lot on, on record. Um, so they're they're hiding a lot of this kind of stuff. So how long the investigation is going on? It's at least a year before it became public. Um, we, we know that the Joint Terrorism Task Force, the, the FBI, was investigating that far back. But other than that, we, we don't know, and they won't say. That stuff has not come out yet. It's an amazing story. Where can people find you? Oh, I'm a, I have a website, frankminister.com. I write a lot for Fox News. Um, I write and I write for America's First Freedom and a lot of other places, National Review, uh, a lot of places. Of course, all my books are on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, so I'm out there. No, that you are. That you are. I mean, it's been so much fun reading your book. Not, I shouldn't say that because it's scary. The book is very, very scary if you want to really know about what's going on behind the scenes. And this is what they're, they're getting away with. And Lord knows uh, what's still out there that we don't know about. But it's, it's an interesting read, Spies in Congress Inside the Democrats Cover Up Cyber Scandal, which is going to be released October 2nd, um, telling people to get onto that website on the show page, because we get a lot of people listening to the podcast later on. Um, they all have to do is scroll down to the link that I have on the page, and they can click on it directly to the book and order it ahead of time. But Frank, I got to tell you, have John send me a signed copy uh, as soon as it is released. I'd be, I'd be more than honored to, to sign a copy for you, and thank you. Uh, it has been such a pleasure, and we're going to have to have you back on for more because it's not just this book you're about. There's a lot of other books you got out there that we can talk about, uh, like The Ultimate Men's Survival Guide, uh, which sounds like a great one. We'll make a man out of you. Uh, another one is uh, Search for Hemingway and Manhood in a Changing World. It, there's some great stuff that you got out there, Frank. I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, it is our Take pleasure. Care, All right, check out... Check out Frank Miniter and check out his new book, Spies in Congress. We're down to our last few minutes here, uh, Curtis. And we got coming up on this Friday, um, Dr. Ernie Panza and Demetrius Minor. Uh, we've got later on uh, next week, uh, John Gondalo is going to be with us. We've got some great guests coming up. Uh, this kid, Miller Browning, will be joining us. He's got a new website, Do Work That Matters. Great Chris, Tweed Lowe is coming up also next week. So, uh, Curtis, I'm going to be signing off and uh, wishing everyone to be safe out there uh, with Hurricane Florence on a way for landfall probably Friday morning sometime around yeah, 6. That's so, correct. folks, yeah. I'm safe. Don't worry about us. It's far as you want with me. <laughs> so, until then, I will leave you with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. So, I say good night. And God bless. Good night. The right thing going here.